So is everybody good and awake now? Huh? Great. Now you're paying attention. Uh, so next Saturday night, 7, 7, 7, 15, somewhere in there. Parking lot right out here. Um, come. It's, uh, we're going to have a kind of a family-oriented movie. Um, <laughs> someone, w we were talking about, okay, what movie should we show? And uh, someone, it might have been Cindy, suggested this movie. She said, well, this movie called Trolls is, is really cute. And so I get on IMDb, and I'm looking, and the first one that I see that's called Trolls has got these really <laughs> evil, creepy-looking things. I'm like, is this what you were talking about? She's like, no, 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 <laughs> that's not it at all. It's a cute, they're cute trolls, and they sing. So, um, and I think from what I have heard, adults will enjoy it as well as children. So, um, anyway, that's next Saturday night. And now we've been uh, kind of talking about School of Kingdom Ministry through this series, and I've got a, uh, just a little bit of a, promo by uh, the guy who actually wrote the course and teaches it and sort of founded the whole thing, and his name is Putty Putman. So we'll take a look. Maybe. Hi, I'm Putty Putman, the founder of the School of Kingdom Ministry, and I want to ask you to think and pray about whether you should attend the upcoming School of Kingdom Ministry class at your church. You know, a number of years ago, we started this program, and we didn't anticipate what God was doing, but he's taken a program that we started here in Urbana, Illinois, and he spread it across the country and around the world. And we've seen along the way thousands of believers, whether pastors to soccer moms to CEOs to retirees to high school students and everything in between, we've seen them activated and released in the naturally supernatural lifestyle of Jesus. It's been an incredible journey. And I've just had this sense, even going into this year, of uh, the Spirit just really pouring out in fresh ways in the sense of a building momentum. And so I just want to encourage you, think about it, pray about it, because every year God uses this class, this experience, to propel people into new places in their Christian walk. God wants to do amazing things through each and every one of us as we discover who God's made us and how to cooperate with the power of the Holy Spirit. I hope to see you there. All right. So if you're curious about this and would like to know more, then there we go. Next Sunday, right after the service, so roughly 1230-ish, uh, there's a delay in this thing, which is kind of weird. There we go. Um, we're having an information luncheon. Uh, so we're going to provide lunch. We're going to do it right across the hall. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to have lunch. We're going to show you sort of a sample teaching of what, so Putty will teach a, you know, a shorter version of the class that he teaches. And then we'll have a chance for questions and answers afterwards. So uh, if you've been thinking about this and just feel like you would like a little bit more information about it, um, feel free. There's no obligation at all. You can come check it out and uh, see if it's something that's for you. So um, that's next Sunday right after the service. All right, so let's pray. So Lord, I just give you thanks for today, for this uh, wonderful time of worship that we had. And 
Father, I just pray that you would be in the words that I'm about to speak, that uh, they would be your truth, and that that truth would go to the hearts and minds of all who will hear it. So we just give you all the praise and all the glory, and we do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of today's message is Seeing is Not Believing. So we'll elaborate on that a little bit as we go. Uh, and so this is the fourth message in this Life and the Spirit series that we've been doing. And um, so to begin with, I would ask this. If you've ever watched the movie The Matrix, and maybe even if you haven't, when you hear someone say something about red pill, blue pill, do you know what they're talking about? See, red pill, blue pill has really become a meme that kind of represents the choice between either taking a red pill that reveals an unpleasant truth or taking a blue pill and remain blissfully ignorant. The terms uh, come directly from a scene in that uh, 1999 movie. And so in the, in the Matrix, there's a character named Neo who is offered a choice between taking a red pill and a blue pill by the rebel leader whose name was Morpheus. So the red pill in this case represents an uncertain future. It frees him from the enslaving control uh, of this machine-generated dream world and allows him to escape into the real world outside of the matrix. But living the truth of that reality is a lot harsher and a lot more difficult. Okay, so, But on the other hand, the blue pill represents sort of a beautiful prison. It, it would lead him back to ignorance that he was in before, but he's living in sort of a confined comfort, and he has no fear within this simulated reality of the matrix. So that's just a sort of a, a summation. And so as Morpheus is offering him this choice, he says this. He says, you take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed, you believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, well, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. And so the reason I bring this up is because I find that it has an application, and in fact, the Matrix has lots, if you've ever really watched it and paid attention to it, there are some really deep spiritual truths in this movie. Um, won't go into it all now, but it's pretty interesting. Um, but I think there's application for many Christians in this sort of concept of a red pill and a blue pill um, about spiritual things in general, but about the unseen realm of the Bible in particular. So when we're confronted with the idea of a world that's inhabited by angels and demons, most Christians take the blue pill. In other words, they choose to ignore any mention in Scripture of things that seem weird or unusual. They believe whatever they want to believe about Scripture, which can include not believing. Now, if that describes you and you've taken the blue pill of blissful ignorance about the spirit realm, then I'm here today to try and change your mind. Because if you're going to live life in the spirit, then it requires you to believe in the supernatural world of the Bible. 
That means taking the red pill. But the problem we face in doing that is that there are a lot of obstacles that have been put in front of us that really sort of pre prevent us from seeing the truth of Scripture in this particular area. So what we're going to look at are what are the obstacles that really kind of stand in our way uh, of doing that, okay? And there are, are really three that I would want to highlight. And I should also mention this, that a lot of this material actually comes from a book called The Unseen Realm by Dr. Michael Heiser, uh, which I would highly recommend if you're at all interested in this. Um, it is, it was taken from his doctoral thesis, but it is not a difficult book to read if, you're, if that kind of scares you. Um, it's, there's a lot of footnotes that you can read or not read. And then there's actually websites that are uh, that he's put up that if you really want to go deep into the Greek and the Latin and all that, you can go there. But the book itself is really pretty easy to read. All right. So a lot of that comes from this. So the first thing, first obstacle, I guess, is believing that the history of Christianity is the Bible's true context. See, we, we talk a lot, a lot about interpreting the Bible in context, but Christian history is not the context of the Bible writers. See, the proper context for interpreting the Bible is not what Augustine said, it's not what Irenaeus said, it's not what any of the church fathers said. The context is not the Catholic Church. It's not the rabbinic movements of late antiquity in the Middle, of a middle Ages. The context is not the Reformation and the Puritans. It's not evangelicalism in any way. It's not the modern world at all or any period in its history of the modern world. The proper context for interpreting the Bible is the context of the Bible writers, the context that actually produced the Bible. Every other context that you can mention is alien to the Bible writers and therefore alien to the Bible. But the thing is, there's this pervasive tendency in the believing church to filter the Bible through creeds and confessions and doctrinal, uh, denominational preferences. Now, I'm not arguing in, in any way that we should ignore our Christian forefathers. Um, I'm simply saying that we should give their words and their thoughts their proper perspective. See, creeds do serve a useful purpose. They distill um, some important, albeit carefully considered, information about certain theological ideas. But creeds are not inspired. They're not a substitute or the text itself. See, the biblical text was produced by men who lived in the ancient Near East and Mediterranean between the second millennium BC and the first century AD. So to understand what the Bible writers are saying, you've got to tap into the intellectual output of that world, right, in order to be able to understand what they're referring to. And see, there's a lot of that material that's available now to us, to scholars, to help to, who write commentaries, who can help us understand those things. And so as our understanding of what their worldview looks like 
our understanding of what they were trying to say increases. And so then the mosaic of their thinking takes shape uh, in our own minds. Now we do some of this already. For example, you know, when Jesus was talking about going the extra mile or turning the other cheek, okay, there's historical context behind that that if you were part of the first century, you would have known exactly what he was referring to. So we do this except when we come to something that's a little extraordinary in Scripture. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that already next. The next thing is to believe that the, super, that the supernatural is not theologically important. See, modern Christianity suffers from two serious shortcomings when it comes to the supernatural world. The first one is that many Christians want to believe in the supernatural, but they think and live like skeptics. See, we talk, we find talk of the supernatural world uncomfortable. And so this is, um, unfortunately, it's typical of a lot of evangelical congregations that are out kind of outside the Christian um, movement. And I think there's two basic reasons why non-charismatics tend to close the door on the supernatural world. One is that they're suspicious that some of the charismatic practices in certain churches are detached from sound exegesis of Scripture. Now, there is some truth to that. But I think what's happened is that over time, it's widely degenerated into this closed-minded over overreaction um, that in itself is detached from what the biblical writers were intending to say. And I think the other reason is that the believing church is bending under the weight of its own rationalism. See, it's a modern worldview that would be completely foreign to the, the men who wrote the Bible. And this all started um, during the Age of Enlightenment, right? That's when this kind of thinking really took hold and it's never let go in most people's experience, in most people's minds, right? All of a sudden, scientific rationalism was sort of the, the, the order of the day. And if you couldn't prove it scientifically, then it didn't exist, was essentially how they were approaching things. And so that particular worldview left no room for anything that was supernatural because it was not, you weren't able to sort of prove it. And so the whole, whole of Christian teaching has kind of kept this supernatural thing at arm's length, you know, for a good chunk of history. Um, we believe in the Godhead because if we don't, there's no faith. Our faith completely goes away. But the rest of it, some of the other things in there, well, we kind of whisper and chuckle a little bit about it, right? Ah, did you read that? That's weird. The second shortcoming is, is more often evident um, within charismatic Pentecostal movements, and that's this elevation, in some cases, of experience over Scripture. Um, and part of the problem is that movement, those movements in particular, they're somewhat predisposed to embrace uh, the idea of an animate spiritual world. Um, so that's not 
that's not at all foreign to them. Uh, but the problem is that it's framed largely by their own experience and a somewhat idiosyncratic reading of the book of Acts. So that's kind of where they end up. That's why in the vineyard we hold to this concept called the radical middle. And we've talked about it before, but there may be some who've never really heard that explained. And so what the radical middle is all about is that if you look at these two things on a continuum, you have the Holy Spirit here and you have the Bible here, okay? And the continuum then extends between the two, right? If you get too far at the end of the Bible, then you really end up with just a dry orthodoxy, right? If you get too far to this end where the Holy Spirit is, that's where cults live, <laughs> is down here, you know, where it's everything goes and we don't care if it's backed up in Scripture or not. So the idea of the radical middle is that midpoint, right, that holds those two things in tension with each other and tries to bring the best of both of them to bear in church and in, in, in everyday life, okay? So it's, it's wanting to have the best of both, not one extreme or the other, okay? Now, these two shortcomings that we find, uh, they seem a little bit opposed to each other or, or different, but basically they're pointing to the same kind of problem, and that's that modern Christianity's view of the unseen world isn't framed by the guys who wrote Scripture, by the worldview that they had. And so we've got one segment of the church that consigns the invisible realm to sort of the periphery. Yeah, we're, we're, we're not really going to deal with that much. And then the other is so busy seeking some interaction with it that it's become unconcerned with biblical moorings and so becomes kind of a caricature of itself. Now, maybe you've been listening to me for a few minutes and you think, well, you're, you're kind of overstating the problem, I think. I don't think it's really that bad. Okay. So what would you think if a Christian friend of yours confided in you that he believed he'd been helped by a guardian angel? or that he had audibly heard a disembodied voice warning him about some danger? What if your friend claimed to have witnessed a demonic possession or was convinced that God had directed her life through a dream that included the appearance of Jesus? Now, I think if you were part of a non-charismatic worldview, you would probably have to admit that your initial impulse would be to doubt. But the thing is, we actually have a much less transparent reflex when we hear something like that. We would probably nod our head, listen politely to our friend's very fervent story, but the whole time our mind is thinking, well, there's got to be some other explanation to that. See, that's because our modern inclination is always to insist on some kind of evidence, going back, as I said, to the Age of Enlightenment and the, the elevation of science to the top of the pyramid that everything else has to be filtered through. And so because we live in this kind of a scientific age, we're prone to think that these kinds of experiences are actually emotional misinterpretations. Or worse, we think it's something that's probably treatable with the right medication. 
And in any individual case, you know, that could be true. But the truth is that our, the, the modern evangelical subculture has trained us to think that our theology precludes any experience of the unseen world, and so consequently, it, it's just not important. But if our theology really derives from the Bible, then we've got to reconsider this kind of selective supernaturalism and recover a biblical theology of the unseen. Now, I'm not suggesting that the best interpretation of any passage of Scripture is always going to be the supernatural one. But the thing is, the men who wrote the Bible were predisposed to supernaturalism. And that's the worldview that we have got to look at those things that they wrote through. And so if we ignore it, then really what we're doing is we're just marginalizing um, or we're coming up with a biblical interpretation that more accurately reflects our mindset than those who actually wrote Scripture. All right? Third is believing that parts of the Bible are too odd or too peripheral to matter. I love this story. Hang on a second. You know, grandchildren are wonderful things. They sometimes give you these drawings that they've made that are like little squiggles on paper, and it's really cute. Sometimes they give you their colds. <laughs> Thank you, Maddie. <laughs> I'm pretty much over it now. Okay, little rabbit trail. So there was this couple in Wisconsin that was looking for a new church home. And they, they found a place that they really thought could probably be it, all right? This pastor, who was the pastor of this church, had a degree from a well-known seminary. They had heard him preach two sermons from First Peter, and they thought they were filled with a lot of solid exposition of Scripture. And so on the third visit, he had reached First Peter 3, 14 through 22, in his sermon series through First Peter, uh, and it's a little bit of an odd passage. So the first three verses, 14, uh, 15, 16, well, four, 14, 15, 16, and 17, are fairly normal in terms of what you might find in the Bible. But then you get to here. Verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. It goes on. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So what does this pastor do? He takes the pulpit and announces with complete sincerity, we're going to skip this section of 1 Peter because it's just too strange. The couple didn't go back. 
And I'm pretty confident that something like this has probably happened in churches all over the world. See, it's typically probably not as dramatic as sort of announcing that we're just going to skip this today. There's a more common strategy for handling this, and that's uh, just to take a bizarre passage and take out anything that kind of makes it bizarre. And so with the goal being to sort of provide the most ordinary, comfortable interpretation possible of a, of a particular passage. Now, I think this strategy is really ironic. And I think you'll find it is, too, if you actually stop and think about this for a second. So you have Christians who will strenuously, and I mean strenuously, defend the idea of God, of the Trinity, of the virgin birth, of the resurrection, against any kind of charge that they're unscientific and, you know, even though they can't be proved. And yet these same people will call out some kind of an academic SWAT team to try to explain these weird biblical passages. See, if the core doctrines of the faith, they're neither normal nor comfortable. If we're looking at life or looking at our world through a normal worldview, okay? So if we're okay with saying that all these other things we're, we're fine with, I mean, stop and think about it. Virgin birth? Really? Resurrection from the dead? A God who is one but yet three? And we're fine with that? But yet... If you mention a demon or an angel, people are like, ooh, oh no. Oh no, 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 we can't have any of that. That's too weird. See, here's, a, I'm going to show you just a few, a small sampling of some verses that we tend to kind of, that are like this, that we, we tend to either sort of gloss over or ignore. Genesis 6, 1 through 4. <clears throat> this is a delightful one. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, whoops, wait a minute, who? Who? The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120, 120 years. Then verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. What in the world? And so if you're in a lot of churches, you just will sort of skip Genesis 1 through 4. All right, that's probably not important. See, see how that works? We're just pushing it right out to the periphery. But it's in there, and it's in there for a reason. This one's good, too. This is Psalm 82, verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Okay, that's interesting. 
This is actually the passage that, that prompted Michael Heiser to write the book, The Unseen Realm. And the reason is, he, he, he started um, his studies and became a Hebrew scholar, okay? So he was reading Hebrew, he, was, he has a Hebrew Bible, and one Sunday they were at a church and a fellow student came up to him and said, hey, look at this verse. And so he's looking at it in a Hebrew Bible. God has taken it down. Now in the Hebrew, what this says is, I can't quote all of the Hebrew, but essentially it says Elohim has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of Elohim, he holds judgment. Problem is, Michael knew that within the context and the way Hebrew worked, that the first Elohim was a singular noun and the second Elohim was plural. So now you're looking at this and you're going, well, wait a minute, God has a divine council? Why does God need a divine council? Well, I'm not going to be able to answer that. You're going to have to ask God someday. All I'm telling you is scripture says he has a divine council and that there are other gods. 1 Corinthians 10.20 No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Uh-oh. Wait a minute, we can participate with demons in some things? That doesn't sound good. We should probably skip that passage when we're preaching. So you understand what I'm talking about. All right, so to kind of wrap this up. <coughs> it's definitely a struggle. If you're going to be a modern person with a believing heart, trying to think like a pre-modern biblical author. But the thing is, if you want to fully embrace life in the Spirit, then you're going to have to try. When you open your Bible, you're going to be confronted with a choice. Do I believe what is written here, or do I not? And you cannot, I think, it's my opinion, but I don't think you can pick and choose what you're going to believe and what you're not. I settled on my choice about 30 years ago, or close to 30 years ago. I was sitting in a chair at Discovery United Methodist Church in the West End. And I really had just, even though I grew up in the Catholic Church, never really was plugged in, let's say, and so I was really just sort of beginning my true Christian journey at this point. And, and, I, and you're going to laugh because every time I tell this story, people laugh. The thing I was struggling about was I was reading the creation story, and I'm thinking, but what about the dinosaurs? Okay, we know they're dinosaurs, but yet I don't see dinosaurs in, the, in, in this creation story. And so I was really sort of struggling with that, you know, trying to get my mind around it. Now, so we went to church, and oddly enough, the pastor mentions dinosaurs that day. Now, the thing is, he didn't mention them in any way that was related to the, the, this dialogue I was having in my head. He just happened to mention them. But it triggered something in me. And what it triggered was a decision that I was either going to accept the Bible 
for what it said or not. And I decided that I was going to accept the Bible for what it said, and I was just going to, God was, I was going to have to leave the rest to God. Well, maybe I'll know someday, maybe I won't. But that was a decision that I had to make. So that day, sitting in that chair in a United Methodist Church, I took the red pill. And the cool thing is, I've never looked back from that. And I've had numerous encounters with the unseen realm since then. And it's been amazing. And the thing is, when Morpheus offers Neo this choice of a red pill or a blue pill, it was a one-time only offer, right? You take the blue pill, that's it, you're back in Dreamland, red pill, you're in reality. But it was one time only. The great thing is, as we're very fond of saying, we have a father who loves us beyond measure and who delights in giving his children a second chance. And this situation is no exception. You know, we talk about that in the context of... Um, You know, if you fall down and, and something, and I don't mean literally, I just mean sin in some way and condemning yourself. And, and we know that God always gives us that second chance to get up, dust yourself off, and keep going. This situation is no different, right? If you've had that sort of way of looking at Scripture, it doesn't have to stay that way. You can dive in. So what's it going to be, red or blue? Let's pray. Lord God, your book is both wonderful and very confusing to me. I read things in there and I just think, oh, that's, that's such a wonderfully wise thing. And then I read where you tell the Israelites to, to wipe out an entire race of people, men, women, and children, and it's like, oh, that sometimes is hard to sort of reconcile. And that's just a sampling of some of the things that we find there. But Lord, just as I committed years ago to not have to understand everything that was in there, my prayer is that everybody who is here and who is watching online will make that same choice. That we either believe in the totality of Scripture or we don't believe it at all. But the worst thing that we can do is to sort of choose to create our own theology, sort of like Thomas Jefferson and clipping out parts of his New Testament that he didn't like. We still do the same thing. We may just not use scissors. 
So Father, give us the whatever it is we need, whether it's an extra measure of faith or whether it's just a, a commitment to abandon the need to know exactly what everything means and to jump into this with, with both feet and to really embrace Scripture and, and, and all of it, even the parts that are unusual and odd and we don't understand. Because if we will do that, we will truly find you in there, in all your glory and all your majesty. And that's what we want, Lord. We want to find you. night that Jesus was to be betrayed, he took bread and he gave his father thanks. And then he broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this all of you and eat for this is my body given for you. And when the supper was ended, he took the cup and again he thanked his father for it. And he shared this with his disciples and he said, take this all of you and drink for this is the cup of my blood, the blood of a new and everlasting covenant, blood that was shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. So whenever you eat of this bread or drink of this cup, do so and remember me. If you haven't already located them, there are individual servings of small wafers and juice that are in the seats uh, in front of you. It may be a little difficult, but there's a top part that you can peel off, and there's a little wafer in there, and then you peel the second one off, and the uh, juice is underneath. So I just invite all of you to uh, share in the Lord's Supper with me now. The body of Jesus given for you. And the blood of Jesus shed for you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this way of remembering the sacrifice that was made on our behalf and the blessings that come from a life with you, even in the midst of hardship and struggle. We give you all praise, all honor, and all glory, and ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. And I'd ask Pastor Chip to come forward. Praise God. Hey, there I am. What an amazing message today. The Bible's full of some wild stuff, amen? I'm glad I don't serve a boring God. I'm really glad about that. If you're here today or you're watching online, the first thing I want to do is I want to invite you just to know Jesus. 
Um, I say this a lot because it's so true. Jesus, when he healed the man who was at the pool, who couldn't, there's a man at the pool, in case you don't know the story, who could not walk. And he said he wanted to be put in the pool and he'd be healed. Jesus walked up to him and healed him, said, get up and walk. Then he says, go and sin no more. He comes to the woman with the issue of adultery and, and says, sin no more, after he shows her grace. Jesus will work in your life while you're still sinning. Amen. He never says, go and sin no more, and then come to me when you got it all together. That's not what he does. So I don't know what you're living in. I don't know what kind of hell you're going through. I don't know if maybe you've known Christ and you've gotten far off. Maybe you've never known him. But this morning, just make a decision to recommit your life to Jesus. Every head bowed, every eye closed. And we're not going to embarrass you if you're here, if you're online. I ask that you do it in person. If you want to give your life to Jesus today or you say, Pastor Chip, I just, I want to rededicate, re-up to Jesus I just, I want to do this thing right this time. Nobody's looking at you. Nobody's looking around. Would you just put a hand in the air right now and say, I want to just rededicate my life to Jesus. I want to, I want to give it. I got you in the back. I got you in the middle. I got you in the back. And if you're online, we're praying for you as well. Father, for every person who, who said, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to rededicate my life, Lord. That is a celebration, God. Lord, four people in this very room, Lord, just said that. And we, are, we don't take that lightly, Lord. So we're thankful and grateful that you're f to forgive them, God, and that you're going to walk with them, Lord. If you're watching online, just pray this after me. You don't have to pray this word for word, but just say, Jesus, come into my life and save me and teach me your ways. I believe you died on the cross, and I believe you were raised from the dead. Amen. And we do believe if you prayed that you were born again. We are going to go ahead and have a ministry time. I know it's running a little late. We try to get you out of here by 1215, but if you need to leave, you may. But if you need prayer, we're going to have our prayer team stationed around. If you feel so led, we have our vision of our church around the, the room and pictures. We also have a board in the back that says, Come Home to the Father. That board is covered in names of people in our families who are lost and who need Jesus. So please, if you don't need prayer, pray for the vision to be manifested. Pray for the people who need Jesus. Feel free to add to the board. You can even write on a card that's already up there and add a name. But I'm going to pray, and then you can come get ministry. We'll be in the pa Pastor John, where they are. Pastor John's back there. Pastor Jeff is here. Pastor Andre, myself. Father, what a day. We love you, God. Your Holy Spirit has been here with us. God, we honor and worship you for this, this majestic thing you've created of the spirit realm. Lord, help us to manifest heaven on earth. Help us to be a breakthrough. Help us to be who you've called us to be. Lord, we love you and we honor you. And Holy Spirit, as we enter into a ministry time, God, for those who are leaving, God, bless them, keep them safe on the way home. And Lord, for those who need prayer, we pray for the manifestation of miracles and signs and wonders, God. Not so we can say, look what we did, but so we can point.